Well, welcome to Bethel downtown on this Easter Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday morning. My name's Eric, and I get to be one of the pastors down here. And I get to tell you what you probably already know, depending on your tradition, your trajectory, your denomination, your delineation, whatever it might be, that for about 2,000 years, when the church has gathered together on Easter Sunday morning, there is a little bit of a uh, responsive interaction between the chief liturgist, that's me, and all of those who are gathered. And the leader gets to say something like, he is risen, the people respond, and they say, he is risen indeed. And that puts us all in the same sort of confession uh, exultantly together. So let's try that. He is risen. risen Now, you're going to forget that sometime before August, maybe sometime before Mother's Day. So I want you to hear that again, that the refrain would echo between your ears and your shoulder blades and between your relationships in your home, in your marriages, in your parenting, in your being a student, in your being a child. He is risen. risen Now, if that's true, and it is, then it quite literally changes everything. Now, I'm glad you're gathered here this morning because we're going to talk about that precise exact thing. Some of you may have noticed I'm wearing a suit, and it's not natural on me. Someone asked, is that a rental? I said, none of your business. (laughs) But I do have a receipt. I always wear a suit to a funeral is what I like to say. Generally, when I'm involved in the proceedings, for a funeral, whether it's a graveside service, a memorial service, a funeral service, I wear a suit, but I usually wear dark colors, sort of somber and serious, to enter into the grief that the bereaved are feeling, to comfort, to understand this is a hard thing. Death is an awful thing. It is a reality, but it's hard and it's heavy. But this is different. I wear dark colors to a funeral to honor the one who has deceased, but on Easter I wear bright colors. There are flowers on my tie. To honor the one who brought about the death of the deceased. Because Easter is a funeral for death. We'll hear later that the final enemy to be defeated is, in fact, death. And so we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus because Easter is a funeral for death itself. And as we gather, because of that death of death, many lives, many millions of lives, now emanate and come from that single death. That's why we're here this morning. We're a product of the resurrection of Christ. And so this morning, I want us to see a brand new creation that was thousands of years in the making that will go on for all eternity. The Psalms are the inspired hymn book of the nation of Israel. Uh, Guys like King David were compelled to put to rhythm and verse these things that all of the gathered people could say together to declare the excellencies of God, while at the same time understanding who they are, what God was doing. As a nation, we get to do that in some parts as a church. One of my favorite psalms to talk about at the Easter season is Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. The psalmist asks this question, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? Well, we all want to. We all want to be able to, but the reality is none of us are able of our own volition and accord. Verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. 
Oh, there is one and only one who fits that bill. And he was led up a hill, the high holy hill of God. And he was put to death shamefully, humiliatingly, innocently for the death and the sin of the guilty. That's what we are here to commemorate. We've been walking through the gospel of Matthew these last couple weeks. We've been gathered together. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to open to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. These last few chapters of the gospel of Matthew, I wanted to present it and propose it and to position it like it's a documentary. Like you're watching a documentary that compels you and calls you to ask the question, if I was one of those characters in the documentary, if that was happening to me, how would I respond? How would I react? How would I think and feel? What would I do? That's the beauty of documentaries because they're real, although produced. They force you to ask the question, what would I do in that circumstance? How would I respond in that situation? Last Sunday, as we began to walk through the end of the Gospel of Matthew, we looked at Pontius Pilate, this Gentile Roman governor who thought he had power, but was absolutely terrified because he had none. He asks the question, what shall I do with Jesus? And we said that everybody, 8 billion people alive on the planet today, at some point, everybody has to answer that question, and we must not procrastinate. What shall I do with Jesus? Just a couple nights ago, we shifted cameras, if you will, in this narrative in this documentary, and we looked at the story of a man named Barabbas. Barabbas, son of the father, every man, who was destined for a central cross for his crimes, and he was guilty as sin, and he knew it, and he knew that this one who was dying in his place was innocent, and he could never again be tried for his crimes. Barabbas tells us that this is why the gospel is written the way it's written, so that we understand and recognize that it should have been me. And on Good Friday, we ended our time together saying from Matthew 27 that Jesus yielded up his spirit. He was not murdered. He surrendered his life, the innocent for the guilty. Now, that narrative continues. I want to just sort of fast forward uh, two times X speed on this documentary that's going to take us to 28. The end of Matthew 27, well, Jesus yields up his spirit, and all of creation regurgitates in a sense. The sky turns black. The, the, the curtain in the temple separating the Holy of Holies from the holy place is torn from top to bottom. The barrier of access from human beings to God is now torn. Top to bottom, God did it. Man didn't do it. God did it. Now there is open access. There is open entrance into the presence of God himself. It says that there is so much power and wrath poured out on the sun that There's this splattering of resurrection power and Old Testament saints get out of the ground and they just start walking around and the text is very clear to say, and they were seen by many. Like, hey, that that, terrible breath for starters and aren't you, yeah. And they were seen by many people. There was so much this creation chasm that happens. We're told that As the sun begins to go down, that two wealthy men, a guy named Joseph of Arimathea and a man named Nicodemus, both of whom were on the Senate called the Sanhedrin of Israel, they go to Pilate and they say, we have to get him off the cross before sunset. It is not lawful. It is not appropriate for him to be hanged on a tree when the sun goes down. Pilate says, fine, go and take him. And so these two uppity-ups, these senators, you might say, they go to Golgotha, the place of the skull, the Calvary where Jesus has been crucified, And he's dead. This barely recognizable mush 
of a man. Matthew is so succinct on it. But remember, this is oral tradition that was handed down for decades before it's written down. To understand what has to happen here, he's simply left on the cross dead. The creator of the cosmos who eternally exists is stripped naked, shamefully, scourged, bloody, a putty of his former self, left dead. And these two guys have to come and get him. Rome won't help. That's not their job. You can't merely take down the cross to get him down. No, no, that would be an insult to Rome and her power. And so Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they have to probably fashion some little makeshift ladder or a box or a chair, and they, they have to lean it up against the vertical beam of the cross, okay? Are you watching this documentary? This is where you grip your chair and go, oh, no, 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 no. What would you have done? What would you have thought? What would you have felt? The Romans won't remove the spikes. Those stay. But the body's got to come down. So you grab one of the arms, and at the risk of being macabre, I don't mean to be, you have to pull that arm off. And it was grotesque. And it flops over you as you're standing on this wobbly chair, and this arm is over you, and now his head that had bled out from the thorns pressed into his scalp that sort of begins to rest on your shoulder, but there's another arm. You've got to get that one. Reaches up, takes this last arm and wrenches it off. And now the full weight is essentially flopped over on his shoulder. This man, Jesus, that had been scourged, not flogged, scourged, laid open front and back, is now all over Joseph and Nicodemus. And now you've got to get the legs off. They finally pry off the legs some grotesque way. And now the full weight of this dead man is on them. And that right there, there it is. That's when you get the gospel. When you recognize and you realize that it was your sin, my sin, that put him there. And then you get his blood on you. You get him and his finished work all over you. Understanding that he didn't deserve that. You did. I did. We did. And you get that on you. And the Father sees through that, and he loves you. Well, they bury Jesus in a tomb that had just been freshly cut, that no one had ever been laid in before, because that's what the psalmist predicts is going to happen. This is Joseph's way of saying, I am all in on this, because one day, they're going to lay me in that same tomb, and I will forever be identified by being buried in the same tomb as Jesus. <laughs> Little does he know, it's still going to be fresh when he gets in there. The Jewish priests and elders, they go to Pontius Pilate and they say, hey, listen, we're really afraid that his disciples, Jesus' disciples, they're going to try to start a story. They're going to try to say that he is going to rise again and it's going to be another deception, another plot. And listen, it's going to be problems for you, Pilate. Don't let this happen. Here's what we want you to do. Roll a stone in front of the tomb and then put a little Roman cord across it and seal it with a wax seal of Caesar. Pilate says, fine, no problem go to it. So they, pay, they post some Roman guards. That's how Matthew chapter 27 ends. But we're still watching this documentary, so stay tuned. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Matthew's gospel is 18,000 words. This is the first time he'll say the first day. 
Every other time it's the third day, on 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 the third day. Always, always, always. Here, it's the first day. Matthew's being very intentional to pop off the page to say it's the dawning of a new age. Something new and incredible is happening. On the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Don't you love that? For 2,000 years, you're known as the other Mary. I mean, Larry, my brother Daryl, and oh yeah, my other brother Daryl, right? It's Mary Magdalene, oh yeah, and the other Mary. Well, what's going on here? Mariam is the most popular name for a girl in Israel at the time. It's the name of Moses' sister, Mariam. Everybody's named Mary. You might have nine daughters and name nine of them Mary. It's just kind of what everyone's name. This is Mary Magdalene. We also know that the other Mary is the, uh, the mother of James and John, two of the disciples. They were at the foot of the cross at Jesus' crucifixion, and they go to the tomb. But this is Mary Magdalene. Now, the documentarian's lens is going to sort of zoom in on and bring into focus Mary Magdalene. We looked at Pontius Pilate. We looked at Barabbas. This morning, I need you to look at Mary Magdalene. Because other than Jesus, she's probably the central character of the Gospels. Isn't that interesting? Not a dude. It's not Peter. Other than Jesus, she's probably the central thread of a character throughout the narrative of the Gospels. Mary Magdalene. She is from a town called Magdala. Magdala is Aramaic for tower. Why was it called tower? It's in the northwest part of the Sea of Galilee. It's where a Roman garrison was stationed. There are soldiers there. There was pagan Gentile activity there. It was a fishing village on the Sea of Galilee. So that's right. She's from a place full of soldiers and sailors. Ugh, it was rough. And we're never told that she has any family whatsoever. And yet she somehow has funds and finances. We're told in Luke chapter 8 that she finances the earthly ministry of Jesus for quite some time, and yet we don't know how she has income, which has led people for a long time to sort of assume or postulate that perhaps she was an innkeeper or at worst perhaps a prostitute. Text never tells us that explicitly, but we don't know how she has funds. She's from a very rough place, and yet she has money. But that's not the worst of her problems. The worst of her problems is that she is possessed not by one, not by two, not by three, but by seven unclean spirits, seven demons when she encounters Christ. She is, you might say, a natural disaster, but worse. She's a supernatural disaster. She is utterly, utterly hopeless and helpless. She's, um, oh, how else would you describe Mary? Um, I know, for that, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of Mary, actually over the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning. The first day. You see what Matthew's doing? He's pointing the camera right on a close-up of this wrecked human created in the image of God but defiled, corrupted, and corroded by sin and the entrance of evil, this chaotic void, and the Spirit of God hovers over her. She is the encapsulation, the personification of all dysfunction, of all depravity, of all brokenness. And he 
Jesus speaks into her, just like he had done at the creation. Let there be light. But with Mary Magdalene, he says, let there be life. And her light breaks forth the first day. It's a redemptive recreation. It is the start of a brand new age. Well, Matthew's going to continue. Now that you're zeroing in on Mary, verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. Now, that's a big deal. But Matthew's going to explain it to you because earthquakes in that part of the country and of the world are not super common. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone (laughs) and sat on it. Now, that's good. If you're a soldier, a professional killer for hire, you're used to doing battle. But when an angel descends from heaven, looks like he's wearing lightning for pants, sits on a stone, you don't jack with him. That's a tip-off that you should back away, right? The angel rolls the stone away, and it wasn't hard for him. And it was a big entrance. And he sits on it. Why? It's Matthew's way of saying, don't you see? You can never roll the stone back. God has opened it. It is open forever. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. That's a tip off. This is a special dude. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. They said, and I quote, these battle-hardened Roman soldiers completely kaput. They're out because lightning pants will do that to you. All right? And he's sitting on the rock, and they're like, hey, you just broke Caesar's cord. That's a leak. But, verse 6, the angel said to the women, I don't know what this says about us, men. We're just out cold. Women are like, hey, angels, you smell terrific. Like, they're not afraid. They're not falling over dead. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. The angel says, let me explain. Why, why are you surprised? He said this was going to happen. Did you, oh, did you, not, did, you not, did you not understand? Did you not believe? Just as he said. He did what he said. And the angel has been waiting and waiting from the moment his creator was humiliated and hanged on a cross. He has been waiting to return and to say, this is the moment. This is the time. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. <laughs> That'll get your attention when the risen Lord Jesus says, Kyretek, graces to you. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. No human, no angel will ever permit worship in Scripture except one, the only one who is divine, who is worthy of that worship. Jesus receives it. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell, here's grace, my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, I got to tell you, if I'm innocent of all sin and thought, word, and deed, and I tell some guys, I just need you to stick with me. Just be with me. Just pray with me. I've walked with you. I've taught you for three plus years. Be with me. And one by one, they scurry and they hurry away from the cross. One of them denies me, betrays me three times before 2 a.m. When I'm alive again, I'm going to have some words with those dudes. We got some stuff to work through here, boys. No, not Jesus. 
Praise be to God. Go and tell my brothers, I will see them in Galilee. Now that's good news. Now keep your finger right there in Matthew 28, because we got to go to a different camera. We got to go to the Gospel of John. Very briefly here, Gospel of John, beginning in verse 11. We've sort of got a, a second unit director of this documentary. John's going to give us a little bit different perspective here to help us understand a little bit more perspective on what's going on with Mary Magdalene. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. What's John doing? John is going, there it is. There she is, all, all now by herself. How could it have all gone so wrong? How could it have come to this? The one who spoke life and light into her life, who, who cleared all the darkness, all the confusion, all the chaos. How could he be dead? She's about to have an encounter. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, you have to understand, angels have always played a central figure in our Bible. In Exodus, we're told that angels are actually a part of the mediation of the law from God to Moses. Somehow, angels are helping Moses get the law from God. Carrying forth righteousness, we might say. The angels are also ministering spirits in the Old Testament. They, they tend to Elijah when he's very, very down and out and depressed. We see in the, in the gospel accounts that when the birth of Messiah is heralded, the sky explodes and erupts. And all the angelic hosts go, glory to God in the highest. He's coming. It's happening. He's doing it. Oh, my goodness. He's happening. He's doing it. And the skies just erupt. And then when Jesus is out in the wilderness, tented for 40 days, fasting, angels tend to him. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying that somehow the cup might pass, sweating as though drops of blood, angels are tending to him. The one time you don't see angels looking after Jesus is on the cross, where if he would have flinched, they would have come by the billions and billions. But he never flinched. And so now he's alive. There's an assignment. I need two of you to be in the tomb when Mary gets there. Are you hearing this? This is our God, our sovereign, good, amazing, almighty God. I need two, boom, and he dispatches and They can't wait to be there. And John's very quick to tell us why, because he wants us to believe. There's one seated where he was laying at the feet and one at the head. How come? Because this is John's way of saying he's done it. The work of Messiah is finished. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel would travel around and the Ark of Yahweh, the Ark of the Covenant, would go around with them. It was this big box that had Aaron's rod, it had a jar of manna, it had the Ten Commandments to show the relationship between God and man. And on top of that box were these two golden angels, these cherubim, and their, their wings were outstretched, almost touching. And that's where the high priest, once a year, would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice, the innocent in place of the guilty. And God would receive it on the mercy seat, the seat of propitiation, the place of atoning, accepted sacrifice. So God's saying, this is that. These two angels are the mercy seat. God's saying, I accept. I am satisfied. My wrath is sated, and he's alive. John wants you and me to believe. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they don't understand. Like, don't you understand what's happened? The creator of the cosmos lived. He died. He was buried. But he's alive. Didn't you know this was coming? They actually kind of don't understand why she's weeping. They, should be, they think that she should be absolutely thrilled. 
She said, and they have taken away my Lord. I love this, though. Even in his death, she still loves Jesus. Now, the other disciples, they're just cowering in some room somewhere. They don't know what to do. She's at least still following Jesus. She said, and they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. I love this. Are you watching this film? Watch, 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 this, watch the scene. She turns and she sees him. There's something about him. She doesn't know what. Too grief-stricken. It's too horrible. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Now that seems a little harsh in our English translation. It's not like, woman, what are you weeping for? No, it's not that. No. This is a redemptive recreation. This is a callback to Genesis. Adam in the garden to Eve. Woman, you are now of me. We are one. I am yours, you are mine. But not in a marital sense, per se, in a redemptive sense, per se. He calls her woman. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. Oh, because he is. Oh, because he is. He is the one who takes all of God's resources and he rearranges them for the blessing of mankind. That's what gardening does. It's what Adam was supposed to have done. It's what Jesus does do. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. He just says her name. You watching this movie? Can you imagine the thunder that sets off in her soul? Mary. I don't know if you've ever heard the Lord God speak your name, probably not audibly, maybe audibly, probably not, hopefully more profoundly. But he knows you. He sees you. He feels you. He likes you. He's for you. That's the moment you begin to understand. It's not just this corporate thing of, no, 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 no. It's, it's he loves me. And that changes everything. He says to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Why is John telling us this? Why do we care? Because John is telling us that Jesus, in just a few verses, has fulfilled the law of Moses in the completed mercy seat, atoning work with these two angels seated where he had been placed. And now, oh, he's the completion of the prophets as well. She calls him teacher. Why? Because this is what Isaiah said would happen. 700 years earlier, Isaiah writes this in Isaiah chapter 30. Verse 19 and 21. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, what would you have done? If he just came up behind you, there you are weeping, devastated, defeated, wanting death. And he just says your name. What would you do? I would ugly snot cry until there was no more fluids in my being. Now, I'm not saying you actually have to weep. Do you get how much Jesus loves us? She's the personification of all people that receive his grace, 
who hear and receive the gospel. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father (laughs) and your Father. There it is. That's the first time anybody in your Bible gets to call God Father other than Jesus. Nobody in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel does, not a person. Here it is. For the first time, God says, or Jesus says, go say to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Why? Because the gardener is doing a new work of redemptive recreation. What's true of Christ becomes true of us. Don't cling to me, Mary. Now that passage has vexed people forever. Why? Because the gardener's got work to do. It's not that he was being cold and callous. Don't you see that was one of the greatest temptations of his life? He loved Mary so much, but no, no. There are thousands of years of people that I must populate eternity. If I cling to you and we end this now, then it's over. I am done and that's it. But there are millions upon millions of people, some of whom will live in East Texas in the 21st century. Not yet, Mary. I have work to do. Not yet. One of the most incredibly bold, noble, dignified moments of Jesus' ministry. Not yet, Mary. I have to populate and people eternity. It's not time. But go. We're going to go start this off. Go and tell my brothers that I will meet them. Verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I love this, that a woman went and told the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now, very briefly, respond, go back to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Meanwhile, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. These guys wake up, lightning pants is gone, and they go, "Uh uh-oh, we're in trouble now. And so they go and tell, not their bosses, These Roman soldiers, these Gentiles, these occupying invaders, enemies, by the way, of Israel, they go and tell the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. Now, I don't know how much it was. It must have been a large chunk of change. Because if you're a Roman soldier and your prisoner escapes, you die. If you're a Roman soldier and your dead prisoner escapes, well, you die and then we make fun of you. Okay, like, how did that happen? You're really bad at your job. And they said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Do you see the problem with the lie? You were asleep. How do you know who took him? Uh, What? And by the way, why were you asleep? You die. And so it's just a bad plan to begin with. And if this comes to the governor's ear, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Israel's chief priests and elders are assuring Roman soldiers, we got your backs, boys. Don't worry about it. We'll back you. Uh, This is a bad plan from the get-go. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Matthew is proactively addressing some objections that began to circulate. Go, no, 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 no. I was a tax collector, boys. I know about bribes and payoffs. (laughs) This is not how you do it. This was badly done. But that's what happened. That's why you might still hear this story, Matthew says. Now, verse 16. Now, the 11 disciples, not the 12, the company is imperfect. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. 
Like, wait, what? How does that happen? Here's the risen Lord Jesus, the death-proof king, who just pops up and goes, peace be still. Peace, don't be afraid. And then he just, he just in Galilee. And by the way, he's bright, he's resurrected, he's risen, he's death-proof, he's glorious. And they worshiped him and he receives it. And some go, yeah, I don't know. I'm so glad this verse is in the Bible. Because this is our story. I believe, and I doubt. It's not that they doubted that he was actually there. They knew he was there. It's not that they doubted that he was actually alive. They saw that. They doubted that he was going to entrust them with what was next. And so do I. And yet Jesus does it anyway. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Oh, oh there's the gospel. The creator and sovereign of the cosmos also loves you. Now, if there's a sovereign and creator of the cosmos, but he doesn't love you, that's the worst possible news. But he loves you. He's crazy about you. So much so he's willing to lay down his innocent life for your guilty, stained life. That's amazing. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And they're going, but Jesus, we deserted you. We abandoned you. We're not worthy to do and do this. And he goes, yeah, I know. That's not the point. I am. I am. So go. I'm with you, by the way, and that's the point. Oh, you'll have doubts. That's all right. Go. Be transparent. Be humble. Be candid. Be honest. Go. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's very good news. See, this is why we do Easter. These guys doubted, but they no longer had to fear death. In fact, they went boldly, each and every one of them, to their death. Only John lives to be an old man, and he didn't have such an easy life after all. Death is dead. Easter is a funeral for death. So what do we take away from this? I always love the old quote. A guy named Andrew Peterson put it this way. We all have tombs that await us, open-mouthed and hungry for our bones, but the author of life lays there, lies there in our stead. So what do we do with that encouraging truth? Number one. I want to approach this for some of you perhaps who have wandered into an Easter service who might not typically normatively attend a worship service circulating around Jesus. So I want to just give it to you in some, some perhaps some uh, apologetics, we might say, some, some, some cases to be made. Number one goes like this. The resurrection is possible. If it feels like I'm about to try to convince you and persuade you, that's only because I am. The resurrection is possible. That's a fact. Some people get hung up on the impossibility of a man coming back to life and never dying again. We're not talking about a near-death experience in which someone comes back but then dies again. No, I think all those Old Testament saints that are resurrected temporarily, resuscitated in Matthew 27, I think they all died again. And they all went, oh, no, here we go again. I don't know what happened there. Lazarus, he had to die again, not Jesus. Some of us get hung up on that. There are a lot of people that will say, it's just not possible. But to them, I would say, how do you know? On what grounds can you say that with certainty? If there is such a thing as God, then you have to allow for this God to be powerful enough to create. And if he's powerful enough to create, then he's powerful enough to resurrect a human life. Or you might say, no, no, there is no God. 
then everything that exists simply happened. And that too means that the resurrection can just happen. Gotcha! If there's a God, it can happen. If there's no God, then it can happen. You, you have to allow for that intellectually. You must agree. You must understand that it is possible. But the thought persists. I didn't see it. I don't have any proof. Oh, but we do. This text is telling us that it is possible and that even people who did see it and who had proof of his resurrection, they still doubted, even the disciples. Signs and wonders convince no one. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is possible, which leads me then to my second point. More dogmatic, more direct. It goes like this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is historical fact. Dogmatically, it is historical fact. Just like there are no actual witnesses to the creation, neither are there any witnesses to the actual resurrection event of Jesus. I don't know what happened in that little tomb, but I bet it was bright and shiny, maybe loud, probably smelled terrific. I have no idea. I also don't know what it smelled like at creation. But we don't argue that it's happened. Whatever way you want to think of it, it occurred. Everyone is on equal footing in this respect. We know that the proof is in the text. When the gospel writers write this documentary, they are appealing to all of the seven empires of antiquity, the Persians, the Assyrians, the Romans, the Greeks, the Babylonians, and the Egyptians. All of those empires, if there were seven witnesses that corroborate a case, it was airtight and ironclad. Case closed. Seven witnesses confirmed a thing in all of those great empires of antiquity. The risen Lord Jesus in the 50 days between his resurrection and his ascension is seen by 541 people. 541. When the Apostle Paul writes Corinthians, he says, hey, some of them are still around. You can see him. You can go talk to him. You can ask him what he smelled like. He, this is historical fact. 541 people saw the risen Lord Jesus that we know of. Probably many, many more that either realized what was happening or didn't. But hundreds in other words, historically, it is absolutely fact. And so the third point goes like this. The resurrection changes everything. Since it is possible, and since we have historical evidence that it is true, what if you and I allowed ourselves to actually believe? Would we stop trying to live according to a different age in which you had to earn or achieve or accomplish? Now, we are the people who have been redemptively recreated because of the finished work of Christ on the cross and his subsequent resurrection from the dead. In fact, the whole book of Acts will go on to show us what it looks like to be a redemptive recreation and to live the indestructible life because of the resurrection. And so we have him with us always as we come and see, come and see, come and see, go and tell. Come and see, go and tell. That's what we are to be about. Easter is a funeral for death. Last passage, and we'll conclude comes from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul has this in mind. He says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits from those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man come all, has come also the resurrection of the dead, that's Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. He's done it. 
Easter is where all the sad things begin to come untrue. We're now free to live with no fear of death, and we live with the end in mind because we know how this story ends. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Let me make sure we all understand the enormity of that statement. Jesus is alive. The resurrection body of Jesus Christ is the one aspect of material and physical creation that is already completely set to rights. I don't know exactly where the dimension or the location of heaven is. I just know it's a space that is adapted for an actual human being because there is a bodily one present there now, and that's very good news. The physical, not just this floating Berkeley, blonde hair, blue-eyed, narrow-nosed Birkenstock wearing Jesus floating around speaking in King James. Ha! No, the real risen Lord Jesus, bodily, physically, materially. The creation is already beginning to be get set to rights. That means that all of the rest will follow. This is the message of Scripture. This is very good news. Easter is a funeral for death. So we come together on Resurrection Sunday morning to look at this Jesus. We say this all the time around here. The more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. So I invite you for the rest of this morning, the rest of this day, as we conclude Holy Week, that you would stare at Jesus. He is making all things new. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for Jesus, for life, and for life abundant we pray, God, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, that is not persuaded, does not believe, is not convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he, the innocent, died in place of the guilty, that you would move by your Spirit, that you would say, let there be life in that chaos and void, and there would be peace and joy and purpose. For the rest of us, Father, who go through life and we tend to forget our awe leaks, our wonder drifts, would you remind us that Jesus is alive and that we shall see him again. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the open tomb. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.